chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. The gospel writer records it as this. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there only a few days. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed in the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Max. My favorite son, easily. <laughs> and the other ones, no, by the way. So, um, you guys know what this is? This is amazing. Um, it's not mine. I just need to be clear about that because Andrea said I'm not allowed to have one. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I just uh, We were at Friends just this past week. and uh, So for those of you that don't know what this is, this is one of these. Um, and, and this gives you an opportunity to experience life or gaming, what's the difference, uh, at a whole new, in a whole new way, at a whole new level. I remember when my sons first got an Xbox, I don't know who it was who bought it for them, uh, I remember when my son got an Xbox, I remember thinking to myself, because I can easily get addicted to things, I remember thinking to myself, I think I'm going to use it more than they will. I mean, because things have advanced. Remember, like, Tech Mobile, right? And then now you watch Madden, whatever. It's just like, okay, those are completely two different games. And I remember thinking to myself, I think I could really get into this. I actually never was able to do it. Never was, even though it was more real and it was more engaging. I, I, just, I was never really able to connect to that. But then I would hear about this, and I would just think, you know, I, I, that sounds like fun. I should... I should try that out. And then there I am over at a friend's house, and their son has one of these. And so I just said, you know, when Andrea was out of the room, can I try that? And, and Andrea knows that when I get something in my head, something that I want, something that I want that I think I now need, it's, it's hard to put the brakes on Jim Johnson. And so I just wanted to see what it was like. And, and they found a game that I could easily do. It wasn't super, super, super complicated. And so you put this on your head, like this, and I said, okay, go. And all of a sudden, I was in a different, wor different world, different room. 
and I could look around. And, and, and again, th- these are known as virtual realities, so it's not real, it's just kind of real. It gives, it gives this weird impression that it is real because when your eyes are seeing something that, that look real, your brain begins to think that it is real, although it's not real, it's just virtually real. And again, I wasn't doing anything super complicated or difficult, but I had to get my hands, so there they are, I can now see my hands, and then I had to do different, different things, different, different, uh, different tasks, and I had to pick up a ball. And by the way, everyone else is just kind of watching it over on a screen, but I'm watching it here. And I'm picking up a ball that I cannot feel. And I'm trying to throw it at, some of you might know this game, I'm trying to throw it at Coke cans that are not real. And then there's this table that all these objects, I had to pick up a cube and put a cube somewhere else. And I'm going through all of this, and my eyes are watching, and my brain is somehow registering that something is happening but none of it is real. I, I still remember standing there, and there's this table, and I could put my hands through the table. That was such a weird experience to hold things that you're not holding, to see things that you're really not seeing, and to respond in ways. I, I haven't seen the videos, but I heard there's just a lot of people that when they're doing this, they fail to recognize the real world, world around them, and they run into walls, and they break the television screen. Why? Because it can be so disarming, but, but so confusing. So when I was done, okay, we got to go. And I remember thinking to myself, should I drive right now? They warned me, don't, don't have it, especially your first time doing it. You could get a headache or probably no more than 15 minutes. I think they said I, was, I had it for 12. And then we go and we get in the car and I'm... Uh, I'm just kind of doing this. Yeah, yeah, I got a nod. You know what I'm talking about. I'm just, I'm kind of doing this. That's real. Okay, good. No, that's real. Like, what's real? It was amazing how when you get stuck in the virtual and your, your mind and your, your, your other senses are somehow not connected, that you end up being disoriented and confused. And again, I don't know, this is just kind of how I think. I just, I thought, yeah, church can be like that. Church can be like that. There is something that is very real when we walk into the presence of God. There is something that is just profound when we are standing in the presence of God. But I do believe that the distraction around us, the disconnect that actually exists can be really disorienting and confusing. I I think it can be misleading. So to come into a place like this and to sing without worshiping. Are you worshiping? I was singing, wasn't I? Didn't ask you if you were singing. I was asking, were you worshiping? To somehow, like, pray. Well, let me put it this way. Max said we're going to pray. To speak without praying to God. Does that make sense? Do you understand the distinction that I'm trying to make? Would that actually then ultimately be disorienting and confusing and misleading? I, I really believe, I'm not trying to scare anybody this morning. Truly, I, I, I feel that the responsibility that anyone who speaks about the Word of God needs to comfort those who need comfort and to create, create a sense of confliction where confliction is necessary. To try to 
to try to cause a, a problem or difficulty where there is no difficulty is just wrong. But also to try to comfort someone when they really need to be warned, that's dangerous. Um, I, I would actually call it, if you're happening in church, spiritual malpractice. For a pastor to comfort when a warning is necessary, the Bible says that is one of the worst things somebody can do. God will judge ever so severely those who say peace when there is no peace. And I think it's also wrong to just yell war, fire, when there is no fire. And Jesus walks onto the Temple Mount. And I think in a way he sees a bunch of people worshiping virtually unaware of what is real and completely deceived that what they're actually seeing but not feeling, what they're actually doing but really not doing is creating um, a disconnect and it's, it's tearing at their soul and they're completely unaware. And Jesus does something about it. If you have your text, I would like for you to turn to John chapter 2. Maybe you're already there still. John chapter 2, and, and what's interesting about this text is it is clearly about a confrontation. We haven't had that yet. We haven't had a confrontation in John. You don't see that. It's, although Jesus has some very complicated words to say to a mother that he loves, it's not a confrontation. It's, it's more of a, um, I, I would like for everybody to be aware. I'd like for you, mom, to be aware. I want my disciples to be aware of who I am and what I am about. But, but there's no antagonist. No, there's just some good instruction that is happening. But then when we get to the end of the chapter, and you just need this for John's gospel, nope, now it's go time. Now the gloves are coming off. Now, in fact, confrontation is necessary because deception is real. Because disorientation is happening. And Jesus walks up onto the Temple Mount and he sees what is happening and he sees through what is happening. He sees through the disconnect and says, I, I, I have to do something about this. I'm curious to know, are you someone that um, is so zealous about something, that is so passionate about something, you, you can decide the something, that people around you look at you and go, oh, you're, a little, you're a little off about that. You're a little too excited about that. I don't know, is it OSU? Right, there are those who are go cowboys, and then those who are go, go cowboys. Like they're really excited, you know what I mean? And so it's a whole new level. You're like, wow, you really are excited about this. There are, there are people that have an interest or have a, have a desire or have a, you know, they, they just, they're into it. And then there are people who are really, 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 really into it. And we call them what? Fanatics. They're not fans. They're fanatics. They're, they're, they're somehow they're taking it to a whole new level. Jesus was one of those. Jesus was a fanatic. Jesus was so passionate about it that the, when he spoke about it, everybody went, here he goes again. Here he goes again. Can't leave well enough alone. He's going to have to say something. You know those people? I can't believe he's going to say it. can't believe dad's going to say something again. can't believe they're going to speak up about this. I, I, why don't we just leave it alone? Can't we just leave it alone? And, and by the way, I'm not saying Jesus didn't ever just leave things alone. He may have. But not on this day. 
He, he walks up onto the Temple Mount and he goes, I, I, can't, I can't just do nothing here. I remember my first time on the Temple Mount. And the first time I went up, um, it was a busy place. It was a hectic place. And, and we, were, we were told, warned is too strong of a term, but we were told, you know, be careful up here. What's so fascinating is, is that in, in, in Jerusalem, uh, everywhere you go, it's pretty much managed by uh, the Jewish authorities. But on the Temple Mount, it is still kind of, but there are certain things you're not allowed to do on the Temple Mount. Fascinating. One of the things you're not allowed to do is, is pray. I mean, you're not allowed to pray. A good American that I am, I actually said, how can they stop me? And that's when my Jewish guide said, oh, silly American. And he didn't know I was, actually didn't know I was Canadian. But literally sitting there, and he said, how are they going to stop me? And he said, well, this is what you don't understand. Prayer is not something you do in your head. Prayer is something that you do with your body. I didn't know that. When you're in Israel, you can tell when someone is praying because it's, it's not something that we just do privately because it's my, it's my faith, it's about me, and it's something that I do in my head. No, not in the, not in the Eastern world, not, not in that part of the world. No, no, no. They know what you think. They know what you believe. They know what's happening because prayer is a full-body experience. It just is. And I remember thinking, we can't pray? Yeah, no, no, no. This is a, this is a Muslim section. I, I still remember the first time I went up, there were just so many people and there were these kids and these children were, were, were singing. And I couldn't make out what they were actually singing, but they were singing. And I, I finally said to our guide, what are they saying? And they were just pronouncing death chants to Israel on the Temple Mount. Yeah. Okay, I didn't, I didn't expect it to be like this up here. I was amazed by it. And I remember even saying, David was our guide at the time, I remember saying to David, is no one going to do anything? Well, you don't understand. Like, if we do something, it just gets really, really complicated. You know, this is the Temple Mount. Because if we begin to impose what we want, man, it, could, it would literally be an international incident. For us to try to exert, like, what we actually believe and what we want to do, this is... What's happening right now on the Temple Mount is our way of just conceding, okay, you guys can have this space. And I thought to myself, huh, at the temple? And then I realized, oh no, we do that at church all the time. We do that at church all the time. Oh, I don't want to stir things up. Oh, I don't want to say anything. Don't say anything. Will you please not say anything? There's these disconnects, I think, that are constantly happening in our lives, and Again, I'm not saying that we need to speak up all the time. That's why I just, I love to look to Jesus and go, hmm, but there are times where I need to, and this is one of those moments when Jesus realized that he needed to. So Jesus literally stands up, and, and, and by the way, he's not confronting the money changers. It's, it's deeper than that. He's actually confronting the Jewish religious leaders, those who are most closely associated with the temple those who would be the, the, the temple guards, those who would be more along the Sadducean line of, of, uh, of, of, the, uh, of the Jewish establishment, and, and those who are connected with the Sanhedrin. And when Jesus goes up and he acts, he is not just doing like a private thing to some private individuals. No, no, no. He is making a public statement. 
Much like if I were to stand on top of the sermon on, or on the top of the Temple of the Mount, I would be making not just, a, not just a personal statement, I could be making a rather serious statement that would have serious implications, far beyond just what I'm doing. That's what it's like in that part of the world. It's definitely what it's like back then. And Jesus gets up and look at verse 13 of our text. The Jewish Passover was near, which means... Um, the Temple Mount actually has, has been quieter over the last number of years. In 2014, when I went, it was really, really full. And it's just, it's, it's changed over the last uh, six, seven, eight years. But over the Passover, it would have been full. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, so he was up, he was in Capernaum north, and then he travels. When they say up, it's literally because Jerusalem is on uh, kind of on a, on a mountain, and so they, they don't see things as north up, south down. They kind of look at the world like this, and Jerusalem's that way. And so they were going up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen and sheep and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. Now, this would have actually been happening for a number of years across the valley on the Kidron slopes, which would be the Mount of Olives. That's where they usually did this. By the way, they were still building the temple. The temple was a the, the temple compound. The temple itself was being built, but then Herod had built like that whole temple mount, a, a great area where we could begin to do things. So I don't know if they, if they were across the the valley because we don't have this area ready yet. But they took that which was across the valley and they brought it. Doesn't it make more sense to have it conveniently here. And so now all of a sudden, there's the temple. And you have the court, most likely the court of the Gentiles. And in that area, most likely, you literally have all the animals and all the money changers. And, and why? And that's because sacrifices are needed in order for worship to happen. And we're just trying to make it as convenient as possible. And so come on up. Literally, it's like one-stop worship. One-stop shopping worship. We'll make it as easy as possible for you. How can we make this experience easier for you? The reason why the money changers are there is because like, when, when you owe the temple tax at the time of the Passover, you need the right, uh, the right kind of money. We'll change it for you right here. Well, how can we make worship easier for you so that you can get in, get out? Things haven't changed much, have they? Man, things are so different. Not as different as I think or as I thought. And Jesus goes up and he sees these sheep and these oxen, these doves, these money changers sitting there doing what they were doing over there, but now we got it closer to here. In verse 15, after making a whip of cords, and I don't think Jesus is whipping people. You're not going to move a lot of, what does it say? oxen and sheep without some kind of force. Out of making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and their oxen, and then he also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned their tables, and he told those who were selling doves, which you need to be aware, uh, those are the ones who are selling the cheapest for those who are the most likely, the most poor. Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into an emporium. That's literally what the Greek word is. An emporium. A marketplace. By the way, I don't know if Jesus is like against business. You didn't hear about him just kind of going all over Jerusalem. I want to close down this fromagerie. 
I want to close down this clothing store. No gaps in Jerusalem. That's not what Jesus seems to be doing. We have no evidence of Jesus just running around and doing that. It's not like somehow marketplace is wrong. We get no, no, no idea of that. We, we don't even know, by the way, if what they're doing. I've, I've actually preached this text a few times and, and most likely wrongly assumed that like what Jesus is upset about is they're not being fair. Nowhere is that actually found in the text. Jesus doesn't say, you need better or safer business practices. Doesn't he? He doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? Stop it now, completely. What you're doing is confusing. You're, you're creating a disconnect. Uh, you're, you're somehow polluting what the worship experience is designed by God to be. And I'm not going to just put up with it. I really thought that that was the, 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 the confrontation that was, this text was all about. But it's not, actually. What Jesus did is actually not the confrontation that matters in the text. That confrontation actually creates the confrontation. What Jesus actually does there is what sets this whole thing ultimately in motion. Because the Jewish leaders turn around and go, okay, are we doing this? Now, it's important that you understand that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is taking off the gloves Jesus is making it very, very clear in terms of where the battle lines are going to be drawn. See, what you and I don't, we don't really understand is just how much in this particular culture every confrontation had to do with these two things, honor and shame. Honor and shame. And so when Jesus does this, he's not just I have a personal concern, um, and so I've written to the editor to try to let you know my concern. No, Jesus um, decided I need to go public with this. I, I reminded my boys of this, that in the end, as a, as a family, in terms of like who we are in Stillwater, Oklahoma, or when we were living in Joplin, Missouri, I remember telling them the degree to which we sin publicly is the degree to which we need to confess. I was told that when I was in ministry. It's kind of some, some wisdom to that, isn't there? That's why when you see it in the Bible, this idea of, of public sinning also came along with it, the responsibility for public confession. Why? Because we just need everybody to know that in this honor-shame culture, which, by the way, had, was, was a bit of a closed system in this sense, that when I confront someone, there's only so much honor to go around. And so should I confront you? Then in the end, if I win the confrontation over what issue it might be, my honor goes up. But what happens to you? Your honor goes down. It's not like we have a confrontation and my honor goes up and your honor goes up. No. My honor goes up. Your honor goes down. Shame. That's kind of how the culture worked. It helped people to know what to do and how to act or how to respond and and what I've, what I've been interesting to think about is over the last little while is there's almost no way around that. I, we don't really live in an honor-shame-based culture, but that doesn't mean we have no idea what he's talking about. Mr. Oliver, I can imagine if you and I were in a scenario and all of a sudden you said something and I, I didn't actually approach you about it for an entire week and then we happened to be in a kind of a group setting and in that group setting I went, hey, by the way, Stephen, 
Last week when you did this, I can't believe you. I guarantee you, you might be, you would be, you would be kind and gracious to me, but then afterwards you'd go, what are you doing? Why did you call me out there? What? I don't know what you're talking about, Stephen. Now, we both know what was going on, don't we? Why, why did I wait for there? So it's not like we don't know, you know, you're deciding to not pick up the phone and to talk to somebody about a Facebook post, but deciding, oh yeah, you want to do this? It's go time. Is what? I mean, it's interesting. Facebook, in that sense, is based on what? Honor, shame. Honor, shame. Oh yeah, you're going to say this? Well, I'm going to say that. Okay, well, if you're going to say this, I'm going to say that. And it just keeps on going. It just keeps on going. So it's not like we don't know what this is like. I know exactly what this is like. I feel what this is like. And so when Jesus is up there and he's throwing down, you need to, you need to feel this. Those religious leaders, not just the money changers, but who allowed the money changers to be there? The entire establishment as the crowd is watching and Jesus is expelling, imagine how long it would take, and they now have to leave the temple area. Their stock in the people's eyes is just plummeting. And Jesus' stock is waiting to, what's going, sorry, Jesus' stock is going up and the people's stock is going down. How do you, how do you deal with that? And actually the, the answer is you, you respond back and that's what we actually see. Look at verse 18 of our text. The Jewish leaders confront Jesus with this. What sign will you show us for doing these things? In essence, what they're saying is, who do you think you are? It is interesting to note that if he was just acting like in a crazy fashion, they probably would have dealt with him. If he had just been some kind of hooligan or just some kind of rebel, they most likely would have just dealt with him. But no, no, no. Now it's maybe because he has disciples, maybe because there's beginning to be a reputation in terms of who he is, maybe it's just like the soldiers, which one of you is Jesus? I am he, and they all just fall back. Maybe there's just something about his presence. But what do they do? They're now in a standoff. By what signs, by what authority, that's the statement they're making, what authority do you have to do these things? And then you have Jesus' response. And Jesus actually says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Now that destroy this temple is not, I'm gonna destroy this temple. He doesn't say that actually. It's actually an invitation to them. Hey, you destroy this temple I'll build it back. Well, they're going to have a real hard time with that. Why? Because it took a long time to build the temple. How could you build it in three days? Actually, not only that, but the temple was built roughly around 20 BC is when they started. This is roughly 30 AD. It's been about 46 years, right? It actually isn't completely done, right? Because there's lots of buildings that are going on on top of that temple mount. It's not all completely done until 63 AD, which means they only had it fully functioning and fully done for seven years. That actually means while, while Jesus is making some of these statements, the paint's still wet. When Jesus makes this statement, destroy this temple, they're not even done completing it. 
Now, it's very, very interesting in terms of how this then works. Because the decision now needs to be made by us. So this literally is the entire confrontation. Jesus comes in. He causes a ruckus. They then stand up. And so notice what actually happens here. The Jewish leaders respond to the ruckus like this. This temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? Okay, so do you see the back and forth? This is so important that we understand. There is this back and forth. Jesus causes a problem. They say, by what authority are you doing this? Jesus then gives his response. If you tear this temple down, I will rebuild it in three days. They respond back. That doesn't make any sense. 46 years. You can't do this in three days. And Jesus responds. Are you ready for this? With nothing. With nothing. And the silence is not just deafening, it's embarrassing. Jesus, are you going to let them talk to you like that? Okay, what are you going to do? What are you going to say, Jesus? Nothing. What I find most interesting about how John is going to create some kind of resolution actually finds no resolution at the time. I don't know if I've ever even uttered these words before. Jesus lost. Jesus lost. He does something amazing. They call him on it. By what authority? He gives a statement, and his statement is, in the future, you will know. They then challenge him again. And Jesus lets it hang. He lets it sit. Um, that, that, that kind of Jesus is probably the hardest Jesus to deal with, isn't it? I want him to set it right now. I want him to make it right, like right now. I want him to prove me right, right now, right? That's why when someone hurts you, your response is, how do I get back now? And here we are in this moment, and I don't know if I ever really fully understood this until I began to try to understand it, how they would see it. Jesus and his disciples, I'm not saying they went away with like their, you know, their tail between their legs or they went away with their heads shamed. They didn't. I don't think that at all. But Jesus felt, this is the amazing aspect of our Savior, and I, I believe we need to be aware of this about him, and we need to be aware of the lack of this in us. Jesus seems to be okay with walking away misunderstood. Walking away, making a very clear statement, and as he is walking away, everybody go, he just doesn't get it. You know, when, you know when I think we actually get it wrong as a church? Okay, and I, I mean capital C church, meaning the church. And then I think even us as a church is when we feel like at every moment we've got to defend everything. I know what that feels like. I, I get that temptation. You're not just going to let them say that, are you? Coward. 
I can't believe you're going to do that. I can't believe you're not going to respond. By the way, I'm not saying that there's never a time to respond. Jesus will respond sometimes. He does. Many times he responds. And then sometimes he doesn't. I just know that with me, I only know how to respond. Right? I think the, the idea of Fast and Furious is not just a movie title. It's my life title. And, and Jesus... Look at what John does. This is how John tries to resolve it. Look at verse 21. Because the, 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 the room at the moment, or the, the, the Temple Mount at the moment was just thick with controversy. Um, I, I just hate it when like, the bad guys are winning. I, I want them to know that they lost, and I want them to know it ASAP. And isn't it interesting that God never oper- hardly ever operates like that? He lets... Wrong attitudes and wrong beliefs like persist, doesn't he? Do you know anybody in the world that's doing something that's wrong and that kind of injustice just eats away at you? I actually remember, speaking of the Temple Mount, I actually remember standing on the Mount of Olives and looking over and seeing the Dome on the Rock and just wondering why God doesn't just flick it off. Do you not know what that... Do you not know what that looks like to you, God? Do you not know what that just appears? It appears like somehow you, I was really more concerned about me, it makes it look like you can't do anything, God. It makes, I'm really thinking us, but it makes you look, and I still remember looking, like south, towards the Negev. And I felt like God said to me, do you think I am so insecure and I am so worried about what everybody else is thinking? Or do you think I can't do something? And, and I didn't want to give him my answer. He already knew it. I don't think both of those things, but I might actually think both of those things. And what Jesus is saying in this amazing encounter is, like I am who I am, I don't even need to prove it to you. You decide. Look at what he does in verse 21. Here's the confusion, and John has to just say it. This was written years later. But he was actually speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, years later, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed in the scriptures and the statement that Jesus had made. Now, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust. That word there for entrust is the same word that's used previously. They believed in him, but Jesus did not put his trust in them because he knew them. He knew they were fickle. He knew that they always needed like a, a trick. And Jesus isn't interested in trying to, hear me, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not interested in a group of people who always need to be proven right and who always need a trick to demonstrate that God is real and what God is doing. And it's like, wow, Jesus, are you talking like right to me today? No, that's not the way it works. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew what was in them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus gets it. 
and they did not. This whole passage really gives us a better understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus' ultimate purpose is and how he would not be distracted. When Jesus is having an engagement with his enemy, Satan, and Satan's looking for a shortcut, Jesus is like, I'm not doing shortcuts. I'm not here to do tricks and turn, turn these, these stones into bread. I'm not going to jump off, a, a, off, off of the Temple Mount. I'm not going to look down. I'm not going to worship you so that somehow you're going to try to give me what I'm already going to have. And what you want is a way that doesn't bring a cross. And here he's on the Temple Mount. And I'm, I'm not going to play your game, Jesus says. I'm here to help you to try to, I should never have put this on the communion table, I'm not going to allow you to allow those distractions to come in. Well, who do you think you are to tell us how to worship Jesus? And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, sometimes Jesus looks at us privately and corporately and says, I think we need to be careful. Believing that the once spoken and then silence of God, think Romans 1, somehow isn't effective, somehow isn't true. In a, in a culture and in a time, are you feeling it? Is anybody else just kind of feeling like this cultural shame being put on the church and certain Christians wanting to disassociate? I love this text because it reminds me that I should never bring it upon myself, but if it falls on me, it falls on me. Yeah, but I just, I hate not being the winner. I'm the winner in every other aspect of life. I, I hate sitting in the balance. I, I hate it when, when, my, when my honor goes down. I hate it when our honor goes down. Like, don't you think we should defend ourselves, people? And what this text actually reminds me is that, are you okay with God saying that through Jesus Christ, I will make this right? Can I show you something? It's not just fun, it's amazing. That statement, zeal for your house has consumed me, I want to close by just, I want to turn there. Turn, turn to, to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. This actually teaches us what it actually means to to be focused on something that is bigger than just your honor, but the honor of God. Something that is actually focused not on just vindication, but on the Lord being the one who vindicates. I would really say, brothers and sisters, we need to learn to be like Christ, to know when to speak, and to know when to let the Lord speak for us. Psalm 69, you'll, you'll notice when we get to it, but I want to begin in verse 6. Do not let those who put their hope in you be disgraced because of me, Lord God of armies. And do not let those who seek you be humiliated because of me, O God of Israel. For I have endured insults because of you, and shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers. <laughs> this is, boy, this is Jesus really speaking, isn't it? I have become a stranger to my brothers and a foreigner to my mother's sons. Because zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have now fallen on me. Wow. 
I didn't realize all what was going on in that text. I didn't realize all what was going on on that temple mount. When they remembered that Jesus would have zeal, it's not just, yeah, he really cares about this place. It's like he so cares, he so understands that what's happening on the Temple Mount is not just a religious expression. It is the presence of God being made known. And Jesus is now the presence of God being made known. And he's not there to to prove anything. He's just there to be God in their presence. Yeah, but not everybody's going to buy it. I know. I just love that, how that began. People are insulting me and people are shaming me and because I, I love you. And It doesn't ever say, and then he got them. J- jump down to verse 17, the last section I want to read to you. Listen to this. This is how it ends. Don't hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Come near to me and redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know the insults that I endure, my shame and disgrace. You are aware of my adversaries. Insults have broken my heart. I am in despair. I waited for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found no one. Instead, they gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Did you know that was Psalm 69? You guys do know what he's talking about, don't you? They gave me vinegar to drink. As I waited patiently for the Lord to redeem me, as I waited patiently for the Lord to vindicate me, I didn't need to say anything because I know what I was here for and what I was going to do. Wow, Jesus. For me? Jesus says, no, 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 no. For my Father in heaven. Because God so loved the world that he sent me. And whoever believes in me, and not all will, because I'm not here to just do tricks. I'm here to save and I'm here to redeem the way that God wants me to save and redeem. I'm not here on your terms. Don't be distracted by things. Don't miss the point of what real worship is about, which is the presence of God coming close to us. Please don't miss the presence of Jesus this morning. Jesus said, I'm willing to endure shame for his glory. That's the picture of Jesus we see on the Temple Mount. That's the model that we actually have of understanding God truly at the center. Him being glorified and us being redeemed. For those who wait patiently, will you please take your bread? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he actually took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and they don't fully understand what he's doing, but he's doing something amazing. They're beginning, this is what I love about John's gospel, they're beginning to put the pieces together. Can I just say, if you don't understand everything about Jesus, join the club of Jesus followers. They didn't know what was happening on that temple mount that day. They wouldn't figure it out until after the resurrection. You you don't have to know everything. Have we already said that? Yes, we have. You don't have to know everything. All you have to know is this was given for us. He was willing to take on shame 
to take on our sin so that we might have peace with God. Let us eat it, remembering that. And this cup, for us, Jesus on the cross, his blood being poured out for our redemption, and we take it, knowing Jesus became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let us drink. And so we now stand before the presence of God, hopefully more aware of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And so this morning, my encouragement and my challenge to you is not just to sing, but to worship.